0: Hello, my name is Pastor Brian Taylor, and you're listening to the sermon series of 2 Corinthians. Our church is Forest Avenue Baptist Church, and we want to welcome you to come join us. Our address is 106 West Forest Avenue, Sherman, Texas, 75090, and our service times are 930 for Sunday school and 1045 for worship. You can contact us online at www.fabcsherman.com or call us at 903-892-3506. We pray that the Lord blesses you through His Word, and thank you for listening. It's it is every week to get to bring you God's Word. And and uh, been here now at... 4th Avenue for about 6 years going on plus, and um, every, every week it's just a joy Just get to stand before you and bring God's word to you, and today we start a new book, a new letter that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians. If you remember a couple of years back we went through 1 Corinthians, uh, some of you may not have been with us at that time, but we actually have done 1 Corinthians, so it is time to do 2nd, you know, maybe I've delayed a bit, but uh, here we are. So would you join me in that uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to God's church at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so our comfort overflows through Christ. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is experienced in the endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, Because we know that as you share in the suffering, so you will share in the comfort. For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction that took place in the province of Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life. However, we personally had a death sentence within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from a, such a terrible death, and He will deliver us. We have placed our hope in Him that He will deliver us again. And you can join in helping with prayer for us, so that thanks may be given by many on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the to the prayers of many. I've entitled this message, The God of All Comfort, because there is a word here, and it seems to be the very theme of Paul's first few verses and and at least the first half of this chapter. He seems to be concentrating on a God who comforts us in our afflictions. And so part of the whole, whole service this morning has been geared to speaking about God's faithfulness and God's willingness and God's love that He pours out His mercy upon people that go through sufferings and trials. It was not by accident that Leanne brought the message of comfort to the kids, and it was not by accident that we picked the songs we picked this morning because we wanted to have one message, and here's the message and here's the word, pericalio. Say that real slow with your, holding your tongue. No, I'm just kidding. Pericalio. It means to come alongside and to encourage, to bring someone to your side and to speak words of comfort to them that is the word that the Apostle Paul uses. It's also the word, really close to the word, that Jesus uses as he names the Holy Spirit. Very interesting. He calls him the Comforter. He says the Paraclete. This is not Parakeet. Paraclete. Okay? He said he, he, wants, to come, he wants us to come to his side and he wants to speak words of life, words of hope, words of encouragement. When we are suffering, the Holy Spirit can minister to us. Believer, you have a comforter. Paul uses this word 18 times in this letter and 9 times in the verses we just read. 9 times. You think he's trying to say something? 9 times. Let's talk a little bit about the historical context of this letter. Um, A lot of scholars today believe and they're fairly certain that Paul actually wrote four letters to the Corinthian church. You say, four? Pastor, I only see two. That's right. The first letter he mentions in 1 Corinthians 5, 9-11, and you can fact check me later, but 1 Corinthians 5, 9-11, Paul mentions that he had written them previously. And we're going to call this letter the lost letter. We don't have it. It's... Uh, it's never been found. I don't think it was supposed to be found. I think that we have the books of the Bible that are supposed to be the inspired Word of God. I think they're already in there, and I don't think we need another one. But Paul did write a previous letter. He seems to be clarifying in this previous letter by saying that it would be impossible to avoid all persons who are sinners. Um, if you go back and you look at 1 Corinthians 5, 9-11, through but that he warns them that they should avoid fornication Fornicators and friendships that would drag them into sin. So what is he saying? He's saying that the Corinthian church is a place, the Corinthian town, Corinth, was a place of great immorality. They had temple prostitutes there. Sailors would come in, dock their boat in a little town, and then they would uh, have their boat carried across on carts across this uh, peninsula to the other side of the ocean small now nowadays there's a there's a canal there but they would come Chuck you just got through you got to go there a month or so ago and so he went to Corinth and so sailors would come into that town and they would live it up they would party like it's 1989 right and and the, and I'm telling you what these guys uh, there was plenty plenty of opportunity for partying they did all kinds of things immoral things. And the church was born in a culture of immorality. Imagine that, that God's holy church could be born in the middle of darkness. God puts his lights in the darkest places. And so Paul is warning them. He says, guys, you can't participate in the, the temple prostitutes. You can't participate with the fornicators. You've got to be holy for I am holy. He tells them it's important that their lives look different than the world around them. He says that they're even supposed to keep their distance from a brother unrepentant and practicing sin. In other words, he says, man, guys, you need to show your brother that this is not the right way to live. And if he won't change his way, you need to distance yourself from him so he will long for the fellowship of the believers again. You see, sometimes in the church, we pat each other on the back and say, oh, it's okay. God still loves you and it is true that God still loves you but it might not be okay. Do you understand? God may be upset at your rebellion against him. Every good parent gets upset when their kids. You ever slapped your mama in the face and got away with it? I did it one time and I did not get away with it cuz I never did it again. Ever. I woke up the next day, right? Is that your story? right? When I came to. You say you cannot treat God with rebellion and disrespect. He's holy. And so he warns them in the lost letter. And he mentions it in the next letter. The second letter that we have is called 1 Corinthians. We've studied it here before. And Paul wrote it from probably from Ephesus in AD 55. The next letter we have is called the lamented letter. and, And we don't actually have this letter, but Paul mentions it in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 3, and then in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 12. It was a sharp letter full of tears. It was a letter of rebuke from Ephesus. And and we don't have it today, but we do have the last letter, Ephesus, that he he wrote from Ephesus in 2 Corinthians. And he he had gone to Troas, and he was awaiting Titus, And he was waiting to hear back from the Corinthian church. He wanted to know how they had taken all those things he told them in 1 Corinthians. He wanted to know, are they listening to the word of God? Or have they expelled the immoral brother? Has he come back to his senses? Has he been restored? And Titus brought good news. The Corinthian church had dealt with the brother, and he was in danger of being overwhelmed. And so Paul wanted to write to encourage this brother that God still loved him that God still had a place for him in his kingdom. And so the tone of 2 Corinthians is, and we'll call it the last letter, the tone is a letter that is offering comfort for those who are afflicted, at least in the first ten chapters. He, he offers and tells about a God who loves, a God who cares, a God who's concerned. But then he changes his tone in chapter 10 through 13. Why does he change his tone? Because he has a group of people that are maligning his authority. Do you know that happens in church sometimes? That sometimes there'll be people and they will, uh, because they don't understand or maybe because they are actually trying for selfish means to gain power or gain authority, they'll they'll begin to talk bad about leadership, whether it's deacons or pastors or Sunday school teachers, because they want a little bit more authority for themselves. And that's exactly what Paul's dealing with here. He's dealing with a small group of people that are trying to gain authority and, and they're doing it by maligning his name. They even call him a liar in, in, and he has to defend himself. Well, that's a small, brief description of those, of those letters. But let's talk about the apostle because you'll see the very first thing Paul calls himself is Paul an apostle. The word apostle is not an insignificant word. As Christians, this word is not one we can just toss around for any leader. These are people that have been with Christ. These are people that have seen him. These were people that were maybe even called one of his disciples. And the Apostle Paul claims to be, and he claims the title, because of the Damascus Road experience that he experienced. Do you remember the story? Paul was on the horse, right? he had been given letters from the Sanhedrin to go and persecute and arrest and even kill Christians and on the way to Damascus a bright light shone from heaven and a voice uh, like and the guys around him didn't understand it but Paul could understand the voice and and Paul says who are you lord he says i'm jesus whom you're persecuting he's knocked off his high horse he finds out he's been he's been mal- he's been uh, uh persecuting the, the Jesus and he finds out that Jesus is the Son of God and so he converts he gives his heart and life to Jesus he he meets with a man named Ananias who who says Lord I'm a little bit scared the reputation of Paul is he he throws Christians in jail God said, nevertheless, I want you to go to him and listen to Paul's calling so if you if you think and you could espouse to, Being an apostle, listen to what his calling is. He's going to go to the Gentile church. He's going to be sent to the Gentile church. And then God is going to show him what he must suffer for his name. Brothers and sisters, the calling of an apostle is not an easy one. Look at the disciples. Every single one of them were martyred. Maybe John made it out without getting there, but... Uh, even he was exiled on the island of Patmos, and rumor has it may have been boiled in oil. Brothers and sisters, the life of an apostle was one of great suffering. It's important for those of us who serve in full-time ministry as under-shepherds to not choose this profession for ourselves. Listen to what he says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by what? God's will you cannot choose on on monday when the job's going bad to be a pastor of your own will you cannot choose to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ by your own will you must be called to it and i think part of the reason sometimes with um, we have a, we have preachers that seem to be leaving the profession and i know it happens from time to time but many times it may be because they were never called in the first place. That's a possibility. Maybe they chose it. Maybe they just thought, well, that sounds like a good job for me. I'll sign up for that. Paul said, woe is me if I preach not the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, if you could back Brian Taylor up into a corner and say, is there anything else you could do in this life that would make you happy? And I, my answer would be, sometimes there's days that are hard. But there is nothing else I can do. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That has to be our ultimate answer. This is what I'm called to do. God's voice spoke to me at the age of 16 years of age. I was at a Baptist encampment and wasn't even a Baptist. It's true. I was a Church of God kid. And at this Baptist encampment, the Lord spoke. He said, I want you to follow me. I want you to go where I send you. Whatever I tell you to do, you do. The calling of God must come upon a person's life. The under-shepherd, the pastor, is not just a willy-nilly job. You can just choose. You must be called of God. And He will do it. There may be some in this room today that He is calling to do this. There may be some. There may be a young man or... There may be an old man in this room today that God is saying, you know I've called you to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul carried around, not only did he carry around the the burden of his calling and and the desire and and the love of his calling, but he also carried around the burden of the churches. Did you see that? Pastors not only carry the weight sometimes of their own trials and temptations, but they also carry around with them your trials and your temptations, your sufferings, and your heartaches. Do you know that? That I get phone calls many times and text messages and Facebook messages during the week because you are heartbroken. Something is going on in your life. And there's a hundred of you, and there's one of me. How can you do that? I've had people ask me, but Pastor, how can you carry the weight of all those people? And here's the answer. I don't. What do you mean? You don't care? No, I care very much but I cannot carry the weight of all your trials and heartaches by myself. I have to lay them down at the feet of my Jesus. I am the under-shepherd of the church. My goal and my desire and my hope is that when you pour out your heart to me, that I can in turn turn around and pour out my heart to God for you and on behalf of you. As a model, that this is what you can do. For I am no pope and no priest, am I? I don't take your prayers to God for you. You can do that in and of yourself. Now, I I can also do it for you. I can intercede on your behalf. But you have access to the throne of God through the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you on the cross. He made a way so that you can walk into the middle of the Holy of Holies through the blood of Jesus. And you have access to God. You don't need me. I hope you keep me. But you don't need me to get to Jesus. Your pastor cares for you. Without Jesus, I could not carry all these things. He helps me. It is not the duties of the renovation next door that tires me, it is the concern that I have for each of you. I do not choose this ministry of my own free will. God called me, I cannot unchoose it. Paul said, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. We are compelled, not by the seminary and not by a paycheck. We are compelled by the calling of Jesus Christ. These people that were attacking Paul's motives in Corinth cared nothing for the church. And Paul, with the weight of the burdens of every single member that he had ever planted in that church, cared more, so much more for them. He he cried for them in prayer. The man who sat in jail preaching the gospel, who had been beaten, who had been shipwrecked, who had been stoned, who had been through every kind of suffering imaginable, had spent his life caring for the church at Corinth. That is why a calling is so important. It doesn't matter if you're smart. It doesn't matter if you're talented. It doesn't matter if you're funny. It doesn't mean you can be a pastor. You must be called of God. You must have your Damascus Road experience. You must get knocked off your high horse and learn what it means to be a servant. Woe is me. I am undone. This is all I can do. This message, like Jeremiah said, is shut up in my bones and I am sick until I can proclaim Jesus. So let us talk about, move on, now we've talked about the apostle and his calling, but let us talk finally about his message. He says the God that he serves is the God of all comfort. Number one, what kind of a God is he? He is a paternal God. He's a father. Now that's very important because when you study Islam and when you study Buddhism and when you study Hinduism and when you study animism and when you study Confucianism and, and you just put whatever ism you want to in there, you will find that none repeat after me, none of these religions is God your Father. None of them. Christianity is the only truth, religious truth, where God is paternal, where He is a father to the fatherless, a husband to the widow. I cannot think of one religion, you prove me wrong, where God is proclaimed as the Father. The gods of idolatry, the gods of demonism, the gods of spiritism are hard to please, and they never act like a father. They're selfish, and you have to kill something to appease them, blood. Of course, they're false, they're evil, they're brutish, they're merciless, but our God is merciful. Even though Islam, this is very interesting, even though Islam claims that Allah is merciful, you remember that if you've ever read any of the Quran, you'll know immediately that they love that phrase, Allah is merciful. Yet, Allah doesn't sound merciful when you're reading some of the things that he says. Holy war against people that don't believe. Swords against people that don't believe like you do. Islam was spread by the sword. He's the God who is a father. And we know that Islam doesn't teach that God is a father. They don't believe that. So his disciples were taught, Jesus taught his disciples to pray what? Our Father who art in heaven, right? He taught, he taught them that God was a father. For some of us whose upbringing has been tough, and for those who have had very little Uh, good parenting in terms of having someone there who cared for them. Do you know what they often tell me when they describe their salvation experience? I have people tell me this all the time, especially folks that maybe grew up in in a tough situation, a tough home where they didn't have a father around. I will hear them tell me, I heard God say to me, I am your child, I am your son, I am your daughter. They will also confess that there was a moment in their life where they confessed their sin and they trusted in Christ, and they repented, and they felt the nearness of God. But they'll often say, He said to me, You are my son, you are my daughter. We have a good dad, a father who loves us, a son who died for us. Jesus rose again, and He, he did so that we could be adopted in the Beloved. His mercies are new every morning. Um, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. He, he is the God of all comfort." and he comforts us like a good father comforts his children. Number two, he's a God in our afflictions. As Paul braces to discuss discuss the subject of Christian suffering, he begins by stating one of the first things you always hear when believers go through suffering. He says that the suffering we go through becomes a vehicle to help others who are going through similar trials. In other words, when you're going through something very difficult and very hard, Paul states this in, his, in the Scripture. He says, there may be a reason you're going through this, right? To help someone else who will be suffering very soon in the very same situation you went through. Your suffering becomes a vehicle to give comfort to others. That's an amazing thought. Though God may cause the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, His grace in trials is only available for His children. The Comforter comes. The Holy Spirit is not available to those who have yet to believe in Jesus as Lord. The grace and comfort, pericolio, is for those who are born again. In other words, lost people who go through suffering, who go through trials, do not have the Holy Spirit. This is very important. What is their solace? When all hell breaks loose in their life, where do they run to if they don't believe in God? If they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if they're lost, if they're not born again, where do they go to get comfort? Sometimes the bottle. Sometimes they don't think about it, they just try to drown it all out. But brothers and sisters, there's only one answer for suffering. God uses it as a megaphone, like C.S. Lewis says, to rouse a deaf world. He is trying to show people he is real and he cares. Sometimes even in the middle of a tragedy, the presence of a Christian is requested and longed for. Did you ever know that? That like, Sometimes the reason that people pick up the phone and call the pastor, and I've done this many times for lost families and funerals of lost families and people that are unchurched, and and you show up and you pray and you you minister to them, or maybe it's at a hospital and you minister to them, and they'll say, Pastor, thank you so much for coming. They said, I don't know what it was, but I was just so thankful when you prayed. There was a peace there. Can I tell you the difference? Believer, it's not a matter of being a pastor. It's a matter of being a Christian. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in your heart and you are walking with Jesus. When you show up anywhere, you bring the peace of God. Can you imagine that? You are a vehicle to give comfort and peace to lost people too. And they sense it and they know it. They can feel there is something in you that is different. There is a peace about you. There's a faith that you have in the goodness of God. And they go, oh my goodness. When you prayed, I don't know what happened, but I felt like God was in the room. It's because he was. He's in me. The Bible teaches he's living in you. You are the comfort, oftentimes, for your lost friends and neighbors and family. Number two, God pours out, not only is he paternal, and he is a God who uses us and other people's affliction. Number three, Proportionate to our suffering, God's grace overflows. I often hear people question of someone who is experiencing a real trial and a real suffering. How can they manage? How can they go through such loss? How can they uh, weather that storm? Well, the answer is quite often this, that God is pouring out His grace upon them. You are on the outside looking in. And you're looking through the window and you're going, Oh my goodness, how could they... Weather that storm. How could they go through such suffering? But you are not experiencing, because you aren't going through that, you are not experiencing the overflowing grace of God in the middle of that storm. That's what he pours out to those his children. He gives grace proportionate to the suffering. They are expecting the greatest pain and the greatest tragedy, and they are experiencing that, but yet in the middle of it, there is this weird thing that happens For God pours out his grace upon the afflicted. Sarah and I have experienced very small bits of affliction. Some of you guys are far more familiar with trials and suffering than I am. But here's what I have found out to be true in my little bit of suffering that I've experienced. The voice of God is louder. The presence of God is nearer. The grace of God is wider than any river of tears. And it is the miracle of Christian suffering proportionate to our trial that God's grace overflows. Can I have an amen? He pours out His grace upon those who are suffering. And maybe this morning, if perhaps you are not experiencing that, there is a very simple answer. Lay it down at the foot of the cross. And you will feel his grace poured out upon you. You see, sometimes we hold on to things and we go, I can deal with this. I can deal with this. I've got this. I've got this. Dependency in the Christian religion is foolishness. God has required us to be like children. I mean, sorry, independency is foolish. Dependency is what he wants. God requires us to be dependent like little kids upon him. You see, we're all Americans. That means we're Southerners too. So That means we are rugged individualists. We pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. What do you mean? He, he, you know, we teach a man to fish and he catches more fish, right? We don't, we don't want to be dependent upon anybody. Doesn't work, in the, doesn't work in with God. He wants us to be dependent upon him. He wants us to be children with him. Lastly, the unity of the church in affliction. Paul recognized that in Jesus Christ we are one body. Over the last couple of weeks uh, you will know there was a young lady who went missing. How many of you know this story in Grayson County? Miss Emma, I think that's her name, right? So she went missing and Churches began to call for prayer vigils. And all of the Christians across Facebook were lifting up this little girl. And over and over and over again, I heard through Facebook messages, through people telling me, pray for him, pray, 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 pray. Eleven days, she hadn't been found. And on Wednesday, which by the way is another day that some churches meet, she was found. Brothers and sisters, there is a unity there is a power in the unity of the prayers of the saints. Also, there is a unity that's found in joint suffering. Churches that bleed together don't argue over the color of the carpet, do they? Micah is here this morning, my pastor uh, from a few years back, still my dear brother in the Lord. And uh, we've been overseas together in Africa. We've served on mission trips together together. And we've seen guys that have suffered, suffered in hunger, suffered in persecution, suffered in poverty. And I'm going to tell you something. They do have their arguments and quarrels sometimes, but nowhere near sometimes what we experience here in the States. You know why? Because when you suffer alongside a Christian brother, there is a unity that is created. There is a joy that is shared, even in suffering. There is a unity in joint suffering. There is a unity in joint comfort. There is an agape love that is poured out when churches suffer together for the cause of the gospel. When churches pray and the lost are saved and the word of God goes forth boldly and the prayers are answered, what do they do? They rejoice together. They share their trials. They share their sufferings. They share their joy. They share their rejoicing. And this is what makes God's people a family. This is what we're supposed to be. Listen, Sunday doesn't need to be the most closed-off section of your life. This is the place where we should almost want to be transparent with each other and just say, hey, I'm, I'm desiring to make relationships in that place, and I want those people to be my family. That's what it's supposed to be. There's a unity when we share in suffering together when we suffer so that others may be comforted, when our ministry is actually selfless and so that others might have hope and love and life in Christ. I think I said lastly, but this is actually my last point, because if you wouldn't be a pastor if you didn't do that once or twice, right? So trust in God is created through suffering as well as our hope in the church. When times get so bad that people cannot help us, and we despair of life itself, what is there to hold on to? Paul says that it cre- it, Paul says that the atmosphere of faith in Christ, who is risen from the dead, is what we need. Trust in God in the middle of our suffering. What were they trusting for? What were these people trusting for? That just as He had delivered them in the past, He would deliver them again through the prayers of the church. Paul says that his suffering was so bad in Achaia. He said they despaired in the province of Asia of life itself. They were overwhelmed. It was beyond our strength. Trust in God is created through suffering because we believe God can deliver us. The one who rose Jesus Christ from the dead will deliver us. Suffering increases our prayer life. That's what Paul ends on in verse 11. He says, and you can join in helping with prayer for us so that thanks may be given by many on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of the many. How many of you know it to be true? You didn't have much of a prayer life. And then you heard your wife had cancer. All of a sudden, man, you had a prayer life, didn't you? Suffering increases our prayer life. Maybe you were going easy road. Just seemed like everything was going just right. And something happened in your family. And all of a sudden, you don't want to eat anymore. You just want to pray. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what your trial is, but I know this. Our God is a God who comforts us in any and all affliction. Paul says any kind. He comforts us what you're going through right now may very well test you to your very core, but I can promise you two things. One, God will never leave you or forsake you. He will always comfort you in any kind of affliction. And number two, when you come out on the other side of this, you are going to look like gold. God is shaping you into the image of his son. This suffering is producing something in you that you can't get through any other means. He is making you look like Jesus who for the joy set before him endured what? Endured the cross for you and me. I remember a story of a deacon one time. He got really, really upset. His son had passed away. He was in the Air Force. And he had he had, had a, a really, really weird kind of accident in an airplane and killed him in a jet plane. And this deacon was so, so mad And he asked the question to the pastor. He said, why would God, how could God take my only son? Where was he? He said he was in the same place when his son, his only son died. He has not left heaven. He comforts us in our affliction."